online broadcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with a very different set of experiences. <laughs> I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraud perpetrator, committing several different types of fraud on online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison, and have since dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the people like I used to be. And that's really what our podcast is about, is talking to you about fraud and how it happens, why it happens, and really most importantly, how you can protect yourself and your business. Today we're going to talk about triangulation fraud. It's a tactic that impacts several different types of merchant companies like event ticketing, travel, companies with gift cards, physical goods, etc. But first, our favorite segment, and we know it's yours too, what the fraud. That's when we talk about, you know, current fraud trends that are happening, either that Brett sees on the dark web or ones that I hear from merchants that I work with that know me and reach out to me. Today, I'm going to share something that I've heard from a few large retailers recently, which is that they're receiving a lot more lost package claims than ever before. And Brett, you know, as I was reading through these, I realized that I think it's closely related to the type of friendly fraud that you were discussing on the last episode, where fraudsters are now calling into customer service lines to report lost or damaged items even more than maybe committing straight payment fraud. And their end goal is to receive a refund and keep that product or at the very least a second product. When I read these emails this past week, I realized that we may not have gone into as full a detail as, as we could have about what merchants can do to prevent it and how it's really working. And so I thought we should spend just a couple minutes talking about the day. So could you recap for us how it works on the fraudster side and anything you'd suggest that they should be doing to prevent it? Sure. Lost package fraud or, or refund fraud is what they call it on these criminal forums. Basically what it is is say you're a fraudster and you're wanting a laptop or you're wanting an Xbox or a PlayStation 4, whatever the item is, camera, what have you. You'll, you'll try to find a, a merchant that when they ship the item, they don't require a signature. Okay, so the idea is is that you, you buy the item, the item is left on the porch, you get on the phone, hey, I didn't get the item. Bingo, you got a brand new item free of charge, they give you a refund and you get it. Now, looking at that type of fraud, there's basically three reasons that a fraudster gives when you ship a package in order to try to get that free item. The number one reason is, hey, I didn't get the item. And that, that reason is given any time a signature is not required or that the signature does not match the addressee that's on the box. So that that's the number one reason that's given. The second reason that's given is, hey, I opened up the box. The battery is leaking all over the place. Why do they give that reason? They give that reason because they know that they can't send the item back to you in the mail. So they get to keep it and they get the refund on top of it or maybe a second item or something like that. The third reason is, all these other items, I ordered like five items, but the, the laptop, it's not in the box. Everything else is there. So they give that reason. Those are really the three reasons that are given for this type of refunding fraud. With, again, the first reason, the package simply didn't show up. So how do you combat that? What I tell companies to do is first 
require what's called a direct signature. And when I say direct signature, what that means is it's a little box if you ship UPS or FedEx that they require an ID to give the package over. And they, they compare the ID to the address and the addressee that's on the box. If it matches, they give the package. If it doesn't match, you know, hey, can't help you. I have to, I have, to have the person that is sent to actually pick up the item or sign for the item. That's what I suggest uh, first and foremost. The other thing is, is that what Amazon did to combat this type of fraud is they, they slowed things down so that uh, it used to be that if you were a fraudster, you could get the replacement item and a refund on that item within 10 days. Now it takes, if you're a fraudster, you can't get the replacement item and it takes four to six weeks to get that. So I, I like companies, if they know that fraud is present, if they, they highly suspect it, to really slow that down. That way that fraudster he probably won't come back again, and he tells all of his fraudster buddies, hey, this company takes forever to give a refund, so they try to find someplace else at that point. Other things you can look at is if the account, does it have, a, was a gift card or a prepaid debit card added onto it, and then this attempt to get a refund happens after that. So that's that's one of these major fraud flags that raises when that type of crime is trying to be committed. Other than that, I'll turn that over to Carice, because this is, this is her forte right here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would say slowing it down makes a lot of sense, especially if you suspect that the majority of those lost or damaged package claims are coming from fraud. What I, I would say with that, though, is that you are running the risk that if it's a legitimate customer that put it on an actual credit card and not a prepaid card, that they're probably going to – you run the risk of them calling their bank for a chargeback. Might make sense if your chargeback ratio is low and or if you have a really stellar compelling evidence strategy around chargeback responses. And so, you know, if you have a really good response strategy and you have some wiggle room with your ratio, then try to slow down that process. Try to ask for police reports or whatever. Some other things, you know, really... It's all about the process and policy standpoint, because like we discussed on the last episode, friendly fraud, however it's perpetrated, whether it's a legitimate customer who's wanting something for free and using the chargeback system or a fraudster using the chargeback system or a fraudster doing refund fraud, whatever it is, it's not something that can be easily detected by current fraud systems. Now, I would venture to say that that's exactly why this is happening is because traditional fraud detection systems have really improved over the last five years. And so because so many more online companies are using these and getting better at detecting hostile fraud using quotation marks or, you know, true payment fraud, you're finding other types of fraud being created. And this is one of them. So I would say it all is more on the policy than finding specific uh, identifiers in the transaction that's going to predict the behavior in the future. Definitely to back up what you said, Brett, work with the delivery company to get tracking and delivery confirmation. I would say consider signature required on purchases over a certain dollar threshold because, I mean, how many times have you had to like take all day off of work or wait at home for a package. You know, you don't want to do that for like a hundred dollar item. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Thinking from like a legitimate consumer perspective, because you always kind of have to toe the line. Even if your chargebacks are at 1%, you still have 99% of your business is still good. So you want to think about that. So I would say at least getting delivery confirmation and tracking 
And then, you know, but work with your delivery provider because those main guys, they have their own fraud departments. They deal with this all the time. They're usually caught in the middle. And so have some kind of agreement with them. I know when I had, when I was in this situation, I worked directly with UPS, which was who we used. And they had some ideas and solutions that I uh, hadn't thought of. So definitely reach out to them. Honestly, if you are, if your company delivers your products for you, I have actually been a customer of a couple companies that have sent me uh, via their app pictures of the package on my front doorstep. That not only is helpful for chargeback responses and for lost package claims, but it's also really helpful to say, hey, you probably don't want to claim that you lost it because I have a picture of that package (laughs) on your front doorstep. At least I believe that that is the intention of the company that does that. And I think it really works. It also helps me know which door the delivery guy put it on because (laughs) I have front door and back door. And sometimes there's, you know, packages. It just depends on the person. So it helps me know where it is. And it, it comes across as good customer service, but you're also protecting your bottom line. Other things to do, um, dive into your analytics. Look for patterns on products and services that are most targeted for lost package claims. So, you know, Brett used the example of laptops or uh, cameras. If you're able to see that, okay, these specific SKUs are the ones who are getting lost package, then you can start to have specific policies around those items, you know, about what you're going to replace or not replace or what you're going to take care of. I really like the idea of looking at, the gift cards, because it sounds like that's what true fraudsters are using. They're never going to use, you know, a stolen card because they don't benefit from the refund. So, yeah, I mean, I think those are really good. You know, try to understand, is there a certain geography? Are there certain types of buildings? Now, some of those things are going to change. If you lock down laptops and cameras, well, then they're probably going to go to something else. So be fluid with it, but you can at least start to understand the problem more. You know, also look at, listen to some of the phone calls that come into customer service or read some of the emails or chats. Look at the verbiage being used. If there's a script being used when claiming a lost package, figure out what are they saying. Consider setting thresholds on the number of times a customer can claim a package was lost or damaged. If a legitimate customer is claiming that their package got lost or wasn't delivered three times, for example, in a year, (laughs) like, it's probably in their best interest to select a different address and, you know, maybe they need to figure out what's going on there in their neighborhood. So, you know, when you're thinking about putting in any of these processes and policies, think of it from both perspectives. Is it going to create friction for the customer? Is it going to be weird to them? Are they going to be like, eh, we'll go to their competitor. They make it too hard. But also, is it going to stop or slow down the behavior of fraud? So finding that balance is always really important. Another thing that I would say that's just a general best practice for almost anything, I think, is create, like, consider creating a task force within your company comprised of fraud, customer service, finance, sales, marketing, whatever, maybe, you know, IT, the project management, the company, the departments that really are cross-functional with your department. And recognize, identify the problem, try to set a dollar amount for it, try to show them in a graph how much it's increased, you know, lost package claims or whatever it is, and then ask them to help you. Get them on board. That's so important. I moderated a panel for CMP this year with a very large e-commerce company that I can't say because they, um, even though they're on the agenda, I want to be respectful for them and their company's (laughs) attitude towards risk. But 
they were very large and were willing to sit down and talk to us about how they created a task force like this. And I've worked with a few other companies in my consulting practice that we've, you know, helped to get this started as well. And it's really important because you start getting champions within your company and other departments. You start to see things from their perspective. A lot of times those departments have access to additional information that you may not know exists, separate analytics, different resources. They might have a bigger budget that you can lean on a little bit for some of this. And they might have just more creative ways to stop these issues. And it really gets buy-in from the company and they all want to you know, help protect the company. That also has a lot of other benefits like being alerted. You know, once other departments understand what you do and why you do it, they'll start giving you a heads up about new marketing campaigns or new business models probably sooner than they would if you didn't ever work with them. So I make this suggestion on a lot of topics, but I think this specifically because customer service is the one who's dealing primarily with these lost package claims, it's important for the fraud department to work together with them and bring in other stakeholders, really. And finally, I mean, this is obviously kind of an exhaustive list, but there's probably other things too that you can do, but hopefully that's kind of gets your mind rolling around how you can get it under control. But know that if you're seeing a steep spike, it's probably not just a case of rampant porch pirates. There's probably a greater force like fraudsters finding a loophole in your systems and your processes to get something for free. So it's not just like, wow, why are we all of a sudden seeing all these good customers saying that they didn't get their product? It might be a little bit of a combination, but there's probably something more at play. All right. (laughs) Now that that was some outstanding information. No doubt about it. But I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and dive into today's topic because we could really spend at least another episode on friendly fraud. But today's topic, triangulation. And I, I guess that, honestly, I guess I'm so used to triangulation fraud that I honestly, I didn't even know it was worth discussing. Mm-hmm. I'm just used to seeing it. But uh, Carice, she insisted. So let's go ahead and dive into it because I'm sure <laughs> that there's a lot of information here. You're saying you're an unwilling participant. Um, (laughs) No, I didn't insist on it. And it's really because it impacts merchants so much. I know it's something that's been going on for years on the fraudster side. And to you guys, it probably just seems like, and I'm sorry I said you guys because I know you're not anymore. But you you still think like, here we go. (laughs) I think he like makes a list of all the things I say that, you know, might be derogatory and then bring them up later. (laughs) My husband would probably think that that was, you know, divine retribution. (laughs) I may do that in our, no, no. So, I mean, basically like people on the fraud side are, you know, so used to it and it's not any different than anything else, but on the merchant side, it actually is a little bit more complex than just traditional fraud, either, you know, the clean traditional carding or ATOs, because there's a little bit more at play. So Brett, why don't you share with us kind of how it works and what triangulation is and then why fraudsters are doing it. And then I'll explain the impact it has on the merchants. I'll give it my best shot. So what I talk to a lot of companies about is understanding your place in the fraud spectrum. You have a, if you have a company that has a product or service that makes money, you have a place in the criminal spectrum, the criminal map of things. For example, what we're talking about here are, are items or services that are purchased fraudulently, but they're not worth it for the fraudster to go all out on his end. So what he does is, is he he will buy this product or service and he will pass it on. So look at a triangle. The first point of the triangle is the merchant, 
The second point is the fraudster. Mm -hmm. And then the third point is the person that the fraudster passes that stolen item or service on to, making a triangle. Okay? So when we're talking about that, understand that a fraudster... For him to commit credit card fraud, if he's if he's doing it and, and taking possession of the product or service himself, he has to make it worth his time. So if say physical products. So physical products. For him to receive a physical product, he has to find what's called a drop address. That drop address has to be, a, it's usually an empty home, an empty apartment, and the the home has to be someplace that doesn't look abandoned, that looks like it lives, that, that it's lived in. For him to get that, he has to get his butt out of bed. He has to usually search on someplace like Zillow for a house. He'll find the house on Zillow or Craigslist or something like that. And then he has to get out of bed and go physically to that address to look at it, to make sure that it's a proper type of drop, that uh, the neighbors don't pay attention, that there's multiple entries and exit ways to that neighborhood. So if he gets in a, in, in a pickle, that he can get out of that quickly. He has to make sure that uh, wherever they leave the package, he wants someplace that he can see it from the road that the package is on there. And the package has to be worth it to him. It's not going to be something that's worth three or $400. It's going to be something that's higher priced. That doesn't mean now, now. Usually, that's you know, that's that's laptops, that's cell phones, something like that. Now, we all know that those higher priced items like that, that's not the majority of things that people sell online. But for a fraudster, there's there's still that other ninety five percent of items that can be stolen. But it's not worth it for him to actually receive those goods. So what he does is is he sells it to people that will buy it. Either the customers are complicit in the crime or most of the time they're not. And one of the great examples recently that I've seen were coffee makers. This past mm -hmm. Christmas online, this one coffee maker company that the coffee maker sold for $300 a pop. The problem is, is that when a fraudster resells them, he only gets 80% of retail. So he's going to only going to get $260 out of each one of them. It's not worth it to him to actually run a drop because he has to have a different drop address for each specific coffee maker that he orders, but he can still make a lot of money on that. So how does he do that? Well, he posts, and this happened, he posts an ad on eBay for 200 of these things. You know, I've got 200 of these coffee makers. I'm selling them at $260 a piece. Who wants them? And people come out of the woodwork to buy them because it's a, it's a great deal. Everyone loves that coffee maker brand. They're getting quite the bargain on it. The guy was actually shipping it with, you know, a, a case of coffee to be, <laughs> to boot with it. <laughs> people would buy it from there. And what happens is the fraudster, he, he goes to the website, he puts the order in, orders it as a gift shipped to an alternate address, and it went through just fine. That's, that's one way of triangulation. So that's for physical goods. If you're looking at, at virtual goods, you know, event tickets, gift cards, something like that. What you see is the, the the fraudster will either, and when I say card, I mean using a fraudulent credit card fraudulent credit card information to order the service. So he'll card that information either to an email address that he controls or to an email address of a buyer. And that buyer will either, like I said, it'll either be a buyer that's complicit with the crime or more likely than not, someone who's not, who just thinks they're getting a bargain. That is the whole idea of triangulation fraud. It's, it's, it's committing fraud, but understanding it from a fraudster point of view that it's not worth it to the fraudster to, to actually take possession of these items himself. So he passes that on to a third-party buyer. Well, and sometimes they already have a buyer oh, like on the line, and other times they you know will make those purchases and then transfer it. So I would say like for physical goods, they already have to have the buyer on the line or so they'll advertise that they have hundreds of coffee makers to use that example. And then they'll place the order as they get the order from the good customer 
or with event tickets and gift cards, things like that, they can buy them in advance and just hope that the fraud team doesn't catch it and cancel it before they sell it. So there usually is a fairly quick turnaround time, especially for digital goods because they can be pulled back. But that's yeah, I, you know one I differentiator. Was, I was I was I partook unknowingly in triangulation fraud uh, this past summer. I was in Las Vegas, and uh, we were wanting to go to the Beatles Cirque du Soleil show. Oh, I've so, been to that. It's yeah, great. It's a great show. I've seen love. it. I've seen it four times. So <laughs> uh, I, every time I go to Vegas, I go see Love. So I, I love that show. But uh, I get on Craigslist looking looking for a bargain, and you know they've got all the Craigslist tickets for sale and everything. And this this one guy, he's got uh, he's got basically really good love tickets for you know twenty five percent off. I'm like, mm. okay. And I told Michelle, my wife, I was like, okay, I'm going to contact this guy and, and buy tickets. And I, I call him, I'm talking to him. He's, he's personable. He's friendly. He's like, oh yeah. He said, you know, I get discount tickets. We, uh, we get them from, uh, from timeshares and he was giving all these excuses. And I'm like, okay, mm. outstanding. Where do I come get the tickets? He's like, oh, don't worry about that. He said, uh, which show do you want to see? And I told him, I was like, it's 8, 8 PM show. And he's like, look, I'll meet you at the ticket counter. And that way, you know, huh. the tickets are legitimate and everything else. And, uh, you can walk right in. I'll give you the tickets right there. And I'm like, outstanding. Let's do that. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in line. I, I get there, you know, 30 minutes before the show. And I meet the guy 15 minutes before the show. And he's got the tickets on the phone. I'm like, he transfers the PDFs over and everything. And I'm like, outstanding. Walk in and, and sit down. I enjoy the show. And then after the show, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I think the guy just took me on that. So now that may have been a legitimate transaction, but more than likely not, because the, the it looked like from my from my point of view, looking back on it, the tickets were probably purchased you know thirty minutes before the show even began. That mm. way, it's much less likely to be uh, be, yep. be flagged as fraud or anything else like that. Once you're in there, they're not going to usually they're not going to come to your seat and do anything because most of the people who buy them are are innocent on that uh, they don't know the fraud that, it, that they're a victim of fraud so they let the show go on meanwhile the fraudster goes ahead and he pockets you know at that point i think it was 500 bucks for three tickets so he's made a decent living that night when it only cost him the price of a credit card of you know six to twelve dollars hmm. well and that happens a lot with events i actually spoke to a very large hotel group in Vegas and they're experiencing it a lot on their events for sure. Also, you'll see sometimes theme park tickets rented oh, <laughs> in quotation yes. marks, like in, out of the Walmart parking lot or some parking lot like that. Like no offense to Walmart at all. Just that's <laughs> a random one uh, that I, I heard somebody telling me about like, Oh, there's this new service. It was like a friend of a friend or something like there's this new service where you can rent Disneyland tickets or Universal Studio tickets and you just meet somebody in the parking lot and then you bring them back. It's like a five-day park hopper, but you just pay a small <laughs> price for it and you bring it back. And I'm like, uh, that yeah, doesn't sound uh, legitimate. Right. But I mean, all of us want a good deal. Like we all want, you know, a, so consumers are all, you know, kind of susceptible to it. And I am so gun shy of falling for triangulation that I usually end up paying full price for too many things. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the way I first found out about triangulation fraud was through working with a travel and ticketing group. I mean, uh, a little bit, I knew that it was happening. Obviously, when I worked for Expedia on event tickets, more than more on event tickets than on travel, like airlines and hotels. But I didn't really know the term and didn't realize it impacted so many different companies until I was 
on staff for the trade association and worked with the largest event ticketing companies in the country and definitely heard about this quite a bit. And, you know, it's just one of those rampant things. And the reason why it's such a big deal to merchants is you're not only dealing with the fraudster, you now have this unassuming most of the time victim who thinks that they got something from you. And if you cancel, like if you determine that that was fraud and you cancel the order or you take back the money on the gift card and they're standing in line at a theme park with tickets that they paid for and then they're not able to get in. Now that customer is your problem. That victim is your problem because they're expecting you to make it right, even though they're the ones that, you know, it should be buyer beware. But they're expecting you to make it right. If they purchased a $500 gift card for $400 online and they go to use it on your site and that money's been taking off of it because you identified it as fraud or anything else happens, then they're looking to you to refund them, even though the purchase wasn't directly through you. That's why it's such a big deal to merchants. That's why it matters more because now you're on the hook to deal with this person who's really mad but isn't blaming themselves or even the person that they met in the parking lot or in the lobby or, you know, that had something shipped to them, that intermediary. I think that from a psychology point of view, they probably are mad at themselves, but they're almost always going to take it out on the merchant. And so merchants really need to have a process to know how they're going to handle this situation. That's very true. So what do you suggest they do to, to try to counter this type of stuff? You know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, website messaging. You know, I'm a big process person. I definitely think that there are a lot of great solutions out there for some problems, but this is more of a process solution. So, or this is more of a situation where you need to change your processes and policies to really uh, impact customer behavior. So, you know, because honestly, at the end of the day, these are customers that should be coming to your website that you're losing to the bad guys. And then a lot of merchants are having to refund that customer. So now they're out the original product or service. They're out the money for that original product or service. And then now they're out having to reimburse the customer or giving them that gift card or that ticket because all it takes is one social media post, as we all know, and they don't have to share the whole story because they wouldn't. You know, that you they bought a $500 gift card for your company and it got shut down and you won't give them their money back. And I've seen it happen many times. And so unfortunately, you do have to kind of think of it from all angles. Some of the things you can do is website messaging. If you have good social media footprint and engagement with your customers, like a lot of online gaming companies or some of the marketplaces, you can have messaging that explains that you will only guarantee the items purchased from your website directly and not just in the terms and conditions. I mean, put it somewhere that they can really see it so that they don't fall for it in the first place. And then also so that if they're calling you and complaining and wanting a refund, you can say, look, we, we know this happens. We're sorry it happened, but we, you know, put it all over our website. Well, maybe not all over, but you know what I mean? Like in some places that are pretty, you know, good to see some companies have done a really good job at sending out emails to all their customers saying, Hey, you know, we've seen 
that this is how a lot of our customers are, you know, not falling for this, but are becoming victims of this issue. Please know that we can only guarantee the items bought from our website, that kind of thing. Again, work cross-functionally to create processes and policies around it with other teams. Quantify the problem and then ask them to help you create the solution, especially customer service, because they're the ones who are going to get it. And Beyond the messaging, you need to have really clear processes of how you're going to handle it when it comes in. Because what usually ends up happening if you don't have a clear process or policy with your customer service is that different agents are going to give different answers and that inconsistency causes more issues. That causes escalated phone calls. It causes the social media posts. It Just anything, whenever a company is inconsistent in their policies, it that's where chaos thrives. So... Knowing, you know, having, creating policies with customer service and with other teams that are involved to not only say, how are we going to get the messaging out to prevent this, but what are we going to do when they call? What are we going to say? Are we going to offer them something just as a consolation prize? Are we going to refund them fully because our brand matters that much? Are we going to say, sorry, you're SOL? Like what? What's the messaging? If it's gift cards, there are some, and if they bought it through a gift card marketplace, there are some marketplaces that guarantee the transaction. And so if they're going through a marketplace of any kind, you can say, contact the marketplace that you made the purchase through. They might be able to take care of you in some way. But really, you know, it's up to, it's a business decision on how much you are willing to go above and beyond for the customer or if you want to stick to your guns, but knowing the kind of the good and bad of both. And then, <laughs> you know, cause like, okay, if we're going to say no all the time, we need to be okay with the fact that there might be some really angry tweets, you know, that kind of thing. Or if we're going to give in all the time, well, then we might get taken advantage of more cause there's no life lesson being learned. And then lastly, I would say like if your services or products are commonly sold on third party sites, like auction websites, marketplaces, classified what are those called whatever craigslist is bulletin board online bulletin boards third party gift card marketplaces whatever it is social media is getting really big for reselling right now you know make connections with those companies to try to get the postings taken down like i had a very large video game i think it's one of the biggest video games companies contact me recently and say hey i need a contact to this big marketplace website because accounts through our video game are being sold on their site and it's due to account takeover or some kind of triangulation or they built up a bunch of things in in an account with stolen cards and then they're trying to dump it before they get caught that kind of thing and so i made that connection for them and they were able to create a process with that company to get those down and a lot of those companies do have departments that do that. With the ticketing group that I worked with, we definitely created relationships like that too. That's not a one and done. Like I definitely wouldn't say that you should just do that and do nothing else. But that is one thing that you can do. I mean, because you are relying on another company and you're now mucking up their fraud department and you know, you're probably in a queue. So it's not going to be the cure-all, but it's a layer that I think is really helpful in these situations. No, I, I agree, and I, I I just want to reiterate the whole thing. That's most of these people buying this; these, these are somewhat legitimate customers. And when I say somewhat legitimate, what I mean <laughs> by that is, is if you find if you are a consumer and you're on Craigslist or where have you? I'm picking on Craigslist today, but if you're on one of these classified sites or or 
reselling sites and you see say a Walmart gift card that's a $500 card and someone is selling it for 400 so basically you're getting $100 free there is something wrong with that that's all there is to it there's something wrong with that either either it's triangulation or either somebody has used that card fraudulently and now they're trying to dump it on the market okay it, there's there's something wrong with that and it's 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 not just always the the merchant the the consumer out there needs to to come to the understanding that if it looks too good to be true it is it's not it could be it is so, <laughs> yeah, especially on the internet right that probably goes absolutely. for online dating too right <laughs> absolutely and, and absolutely and everything but, else but you know the thing is is that that from a merchant point you're never going to hear it, it it's always the complainers so when you mm -hmm. when you do shut off those cards, when you do refuse services, you can bet your bottom dollar that that person, if it's a legitimate customer, whether it is or not, they're going to complain. Right. Yeah, I may have bought it uh, on this third mar third party site or wherever, but you know you didn't you didn't it was a real ticket and you or it was a real gift card and you shut it down. They're not right. going to say where they got it or anything else. They're just going to say this company shut it down. They're going to give you bad reviews from now until the end of time. So you're going to lose you're going to lose business because of that. And it's it's important to understand that before you start putting these these protocols and policies in place. But as Carice said, I mean always one of the most important things is to make sure that that policy is adhered to from by everyone at customer service mm -hmm. because when when someone gets a different response, they go by whichever response benefits them most. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do, and that's probably also a good loophole for fraudsters too, right? Oh, it's Fine. great. If you find a customer service agent that says something differently than everyone else, those that becomes your best friend, right? Absolutely. And and to give you an idea on the on these fraud forums, these criminal websites, you actually have tutorials that will list the customer service agent's name. Are you serious? You want, oh, absolutely. This, uh, <laughs> I, I will t I will tell you this because it, they they already shut it down. But early last year, Wells Fargo was being hit so hard with uh, with new account fraud that what happened was is there was this tutorial that was circling around saying that okay you can set up a new account and the way to do that is you call in and you speak to this guy oh my god they, they gave the customer agent's name on oh. in the tutorial well someone finally sent the tutorial to Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo finally shut it down. But that's an example of just how detailed these crimes are. People, the, the, the criminals, they sit back and they say, okay, do we want, if, if it's a customer service, is, is it customer service from different countries? Which countries, which countries work better for us and which ones don't? Is there a specific customer service agent that I want to try to get in contact with? Because that's the easy one to manipulate. Wow. Uh, or maybe that's one that's partially complicit or something like that. Hmm. Well, right. And they also know exactly what to say and how to say it. And then they share that on the dark forum, Absolutely. dark web forums. They know that, you know, oh, if you say this, then this is how, you know, you get right. through or whatever. But I mean, good customers are legitimate customers or somewhat legitimate customers are the same way. Like they will keep calling back until they get an answer that they like. And once they get that answer that they like, <laughs> well, then that's going <laughs> to be it. the answer that they are going to tell you about over and over and over again. And every fraud that's manager it. has taken these escalation calls. And so that's why it's so important to work with other teams and departments. And we will definitely be talking about social engineering soon because whew, Brett and I have a doozy of a story to share with you guys about oh, social yes. engineering oh, and yes. how it can really turn honestly physically dangerous in some situations situations uh, for fraud managers. But I mean, I think that in this case, it's about 
I mean, first of all, I cannot pass up the opportunity to point out that you kind of called yourself a somewhat legitimate customer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) With, (laughs) you know, with you getting your love tickets from Raleigh of Rodzer. I mean, (laughs) but there are definitely things that all of us are going to fall for at one point in time. Like I'm part of like a local Facebook group for moms in my neighborhood. And Somebody posted the other day, Pearl Jam's coming to town soon where they're doing a home show. And I'm very fortunate to have tickets because ah. my, you know, but my husband bought them directly. However, <laughs> somebody posted on the forum, is it safe to buy tickets from Craigslist? And I was like, it's really a buyer beware situation. You know this. I don't, you know, I don't, there are definitely legitimate people that sell stuff on Craigslist or eBay Absolutely. or anywhere else. hundred percent. And that's what, you know, fraudsters are counting on. But it, you have to know, especially with tickets, that there's a chance that you're going to get there and it's going to get shut down. And I don't know how many stories I've heard from the theme park companies of families with crying children who couldn't wait to go on the roller coaster and see their favorite characters. And, but their parents were trying to save 20 bucks per ticket. And I understand. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a message to customers that we can only guarantee what's sold through our site. And that's, you know, that's it. And it stinks. But knowing that, I mean, is and communicating that and then being very firm on that, I think, geez, if there's dark web forums that talk about exact, you know, customer service reps and everything else down to that letter, hopefully the word will get out that, hey, you know, these guys aren't going to, you know, customers aren't going to want to buy these products anymore after a while. As long as the demand goes down, then hopefully the supply will go down too. That's it. And, and you know, failure, failure to do anything. I mean, I, we've seen this. We've seen this in the travel industry. Up until really two months ago, booking vacations, airline tickets, hotels, anything else, that was one of the major industries on these fraud forums because <laughs> none of the travel companies were, were doing anything about it. So they would, uh, they would. Well, buy an airplane ticket for you for 30%. <laughs> that's not true. They weren't that, doing anything about it. That is not it. true. But, they but, have a fraud. They do. Actually, some of them have very, <laughs> very, very big fraud departments. What about um, the one, though? The one that I'm talking about. Oh, I know the one that you're talking about. <laughs> and you know that I know that one very well. Without selling anyone down the river or anything like that, like without selling anyone out, I think what I would say is – Companies go through different journeys and processes and changes and things that can impact their fraud rates and how easy it can be for a fraudster to use their system can vary from everything to what systems they're putting in place, what processes, who's at the head of those departments, um, if they've had changes in management, if management has different goals and objectives and maybe is farther away from the details or the goals. <laughs> is this a diplomatic are, enough answer you are for you? really trying to be diplomatic on that. <laughs> Brett knows that when we're not recording, I'm a little <laughs> bit less edited. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're definitely – I just want to be clear because I know a lot of the people that work for that company or and also, honestly, a lot of travel companies because I've been in that space quite a bit and, you know, worked with several direct airlines and, and other things too and um, a lot of the online travel agencies, both domestic and international. And I would say that they probably were stopping a lot of fraud. I know that they were, but they're – there's always going to be a lag between what the fraudsters identify as a vulnerability 
and the merchant stopping that that hole. And that will vary the time the time frame between that can change from a week or two, two months to maybe a year. But just want to clarify, they were doing something. <laughs> all right, all right, but they not were, enough. They were doing something, but, but meanwhile, <laughs> let me just let me just say this. Meanwhile, the fraudsters were selling airline tickets out the wazoo. People were buying them at 30%. And they were going to sit in the, in the registered seats without fear of consequence. Right. <laughs> Up until, I think it was last month, hmm. but that I read this article that the feds arrested 33 people in, in like two days sitting in those airline seats. <laughs> wow. Yeah, people used to always ask me, like, they never understood how you could defraud airplane tickets because it requires a person's name and their driver's license. But it's honestly the sheer quantity and trying to contact law enforcement and saying, hey, somebody's going to be at this airport at this time with a stolen credit card is just not their top priority. That's right. And evidently this day it was it was their priority. So they got like 33 people. It caused some major ripples among uh, among these online forums that sell these types of services illegally that being said they're right back to it now so it's uh well and that's the difference though between there's the prevention and then there's the response and i think that a lot of companies focus primarily on prevention and i think that it's important to have both and i have kind of propagated my agenda on this by always almost always having a session at least one in the conferences I organize about this and writing articles and encouraging the people who do this for their companies to speak up and be active in fraud prevention but it does send a really strong message if you have an investigations team who's looking at all your losses and providing them to law enforcement and doing those big organized stings internationally are very effective and I think they do send a pretty strong response. I know people who are former Secret Service, former FBI, who have created investigation units for some of the biggest online companies. And there is sometimes some pushback in saying, well, this doesn't have a directly correlated ROI. Like, how are we going to return our investment? You can say on the prevention side, well, we're going to stop chargebacks by X percent, and this is how much dollars we're going to save, or this is the opportunity. But with the investigations piece, it can be difficult for some companies to wrap their heads around it. And then a lot of companies will say, well, law enforcement won't work with me. But there are ways to do that. I'll see if I can try to convince one of the people who have created an investigation unit to come on the pod. I can think of one of two that probably would be willing to talk, hopefully not under anonymity, but we may need to do that. But I think that that might be really helpful because that is a whole other topic. But Would you say that that is a good prevention tool, that that gets people on the dark web to say don't mess with those guys because they'll work with law enforcement? No, the the thing is is that fraudsters know. I mean, that's probably the first lesson I learned as a cyber criminal was they don't complain to law enforcement. That was really the first lesson. I mean, Well, or... They do complain to law enforcement and they don't feel heard. <laughs> they don't right. feel like anything's they, they done. They don't feel I'm law enforcement doing anything. Yeah, and I'm not disputing the fact that that's not an issue. But yeah. there are definitely people who have figured it out. And it's a lot of it's relationship-based, getting involved in your ECTF task force locally. Absolutely. Which is the electronic crime task force usually run through the Secret Service. Doing a lot of networking. And then you do have to put the case together and put it on a silver platter. But another cool fact or fun fact about 
putting those cases together is that it's not just the amount of fraud that they successfully stole from you. You can also calculate the attempts. And I know that Brett knows this firsthand. Yes, they, they go by attempted dollar <laughs> amount, not, not, not actually dollars. I'm not stolen. telling you anything that you don't already know. <laughs> we can yeah, laugh and, about and, it. You know, my, my, my viewpoint is, is that uh, like IC3, I think that is completely worthless. I really do. I think it's a huge recycle bin online that complaints go to and they're never really nothing really happens to them. Now, I may be wrong in that, but I am not. I've heard law enforcement recently say the exact same thing. So I want to my, tread lightly on that because I know people that work for them and I know that they really are trying to bring value. But I do know that there are more companies than not who have said that they filed a report with them and nothing happened. I would say that that might be a good step, but not the only step that should be right. done for sure. You can't just file a report and then no, expect I, I agree. I for agree. it to happen. And, and the thing is, is that, and this is from a, from an ex-fraudster's point of view, I think that charges should be filed wherever possible and that all crimes need to be turned over to law enforcement because at the end of the day, it goes into a big database and these crimes are correlated and linked to other crimes and that's where cases come from. That's where they're built. So it, it's it's really up to the merchants and consumers who are victims to report this so that it really does, in the long run, it helps stop the fraud that's happening. And it's really important to report these crimes. It really is. It's By not doing that, you're really not doing the job that you need to be doing. Well, but I would say do all the legwork, right? Because, Absolutely. And Absolutely. also select the right agency because jurisdiction is always an issue you know is it the merchant's jurisdiction is it the victim the consumer victim is it where you think the fraudster is like there's so many different things so usually federal would be where i would go secret service fbi the ncfta has a lot of great training and conferences with all the major law enforcement organizations so you know we definitely cmp tries to bring in you know secret service and fbi as well so, I mean, there's definitely ways, and I think we should for sure have a more deep dive conversation about this, but kind of, you know, gives you a little bit of a starter. But that's interesting that the large online travel company was <laughs> able to work towards some prosecution, yeah. and hopefully that helped a little bit. But I think it has to be in tandem, right? Because you can prosecute all day long, but if you're not preventing the fraud in the first place, absolutely, that's not... Uh going to be enough to prevent them from coming back. Is that what right, you're so basically saying? It is. So, so you arrest you arrest 33 and meanwhile 3,000 or 30,000 are still committing the fraud. That's a problem. So you really have to, as you said, work in tandem. And, you know, I got to tell you too, I, when, when you suggested this topic to me, I was like, eh. but you were right and I was wrong. Let me, <laughs> let, it, let me go on the record. Let me go on the record by saying Carice was right and Brett was wrong. You know, my husband refuses to tell me that I'm right. So instead, he always says, You are not incorrect. <laughs> oh, I should have said that, but not. <laughs> no, but I've got this recorded now. This is awesome. I'm just going to play it over and over and over again. Yeah, I'm um, sure it'll be a meme somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're that big yet, but somebody with some free time can create that. But no, in fact, my daughter, when she was little, once said, you were not incorrect, mommy. And I was like, see what you started? <laughs> All right. So, you no, know, I mean, I, well, or the truth, either this was a really good topic to discuss, or you and I can literally talk about anything. I think that 
maybe a it's little a toss both. up, right? I think it is a little <laughs> bit of both, but hopefully that was helpful to people. And seriously, please do keep contacting us. And I will say for me, my LinkedIn is a little bit backlogged right now. And I'm really, really sorry. I'm not trying to ignore anyone, but definitely I read them and I I'm getting to the point where it's hard for me to give a ton of advice in the emails, but we do want to know what you guys are experiencing and what you want to hear us talk about. We'll definitely keep working it into these episodes because we plan on doing this for, you know, at least a couple of years. So <laughs> we want to make sure we're giving you the content you want. And thanks again for all the awesome feedback so far and suggestions. We really appreciate that. Okay. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. We really hope that you've learned a lot. We've got so many of these topics to cover and to help to, to protect you and your business from fraud. So please subscribe to Online Fraudcast to be alerted when a new episode is out. And because we're new, please, please, please tell your <laughs> friends. Rate and review wherever you can and to help others learn about these types of topics as well. And a tiny sidebar shout out to our friend of our podcast, who I cannot, I don't want to say the name of his company, but it's really, really big. Maybe the name of Fruit, <laughs> who left our first review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it because it Thank does matter. <laughs> There's a reason why every podcast you listen to says this, because it does help us get discovered by more people and really so that we can keep doing this. Absolutely. So, um, Thank you. Yeah, so we've been super humbled by it, and we really appreciate all of it. We do want to hear what you love so far about the podcast, how we can improve, and what topics you want to hear us discuss. So you can find Online Frogcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can follow us individually on LinkedIn. Or lastly, you can email us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. All right, until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. Thank you.